Sketches from Scripture Presents. Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness, a teaching series from the stories of the Torah. Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. As I've said, I hope that these lessons are encouraging for you if you're a believer that it's helping you understand Scripture better, not just the very Scripture that we're looking at, but uh, how to apply that understanding to really any Scripture in order to get a good theology, a good understanding of what's what's really happening in the text, be able to understand things in context, not use things out of context. That's my goal here. Not just that you understand, say, you know, the one chapter in Leviticus that we're going to spend some time on tonight, but that you really understand how to look at all of Scripture. If you're a believer and you're watching this, I hope this is doing that for you. If you're a skeptic and you're watching this, maybe you want to see what um, this... Uh, as they would say about Paul in the New Testament, what this idle babbler wishes to say, um, then uh, I hope that you'll see that there is some very interesting things in Scripture that really speak to human nature, um, the nature of the world, life as we know it, and they have so much insight and so much wisdom, sometimes about things that, that we didn't even really learn scientifically until the last I don't know, 50 or 100 years or so, so you kind of got to wonder, how did they know these things? You know, how, how did they get this wisdom? Where did this wisdom come from? Who wrote this? In other words, we don't know the author. We call this the books of Moses. We don't know who the real um, human authors were, or the human editors that compiled these stories. We attribute them to Moses. Uh, and there's some some scripture that uh, gives us some indication that, that that may or may not be the case. But... Um, Ultimately, we, we don't know who penned these, these words, specifically the ones we're going to look at tonight. But those of us who believe, believe it to be the Word of God and believe that these things were compiled by the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately, ultimately, the author is God. And so when you look into these words, you have to ask, what is the author? What is the Lord trying to tell us first about himself and then also about us? Remember, those are the two first questions we ask whenever we read a scripture. What's it say about God? And what's it say about us as people? Uh, and then you can go on from there about how you're going to obey it. How am I going to put this passage into practice? So tonight, if you've got a Bible in front of you and you want to have it open, I'm going to have a few verses on the screen. 
Not everything that I'm going to read will be on the screen, but, but some of it will. The important stuff will. I'm going to be looking at um, really starting in Exodus 32 in terms of reading scripture. Uh, so while you're turning to Exodus 32, I am actually going to start in Exodus 1. And I'm just going to kind of flip through Exodus. We're just kind of going to go chapter by chapter and just make sure we kind of cover everything that's happened since the end of Genesis. So many of you watched the Genesis series. Now you're here for this series. We're just going to blow through it and kind of see what happened, almost sort of just review style. I'm really just reading the, the chapter headings. They're printed in my uh, English Bible. That's pretty much all that I'm doing. And um, so if you want to follow along with me in doing that, you're welcome to, but it's not going to take long. When I, when I stop to read, it's going to be when we get to Exodus 32. So starting just in Exodus 1, this is where you see coming out of the end of Genesis, uh, Israel, the family of Israel becomes the people of Israel, and they grow in Egypt, and they're made very great. And a new Pharaoh comes in and creates hardship for them and oppression. Moses is born. Moses is raised as the son of the Pharaoh and uh, eventually leaves that life to go wander as a shepherd after being a murderer. Then God approaches him in the burning bush and says, you need to go back and get my people out of here. He gives signs that Moses can show. Uh, Moses, with his brother Aaron as his spokesperson, they confront Pharaoh and that leads to more oppression of Israel. But God promises freedom. And then we see what we call the 10 plagues. And so in Exodus 7 and beyond, we have the 10 plagues all the way through Exodus 11. Exodus 12, we have the Passover, the instructions for the Passover so that the Israelites themselves are not victims to the 10th and final plague of the death of the firstborn. Exodus 13, uh, we have a continuation of that and the actual Exodus on their way out of Egypt. Exodus 14, Egypt pursues them. Uh, and the Red Sea is parted and Israel escapes. And in Exodus 15, we have Moses's song, the victory song. Moses and the Israelites sing the song to the Lord. And um, we talked about 15.2 in particular. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. And so we go on to uh, 16, manna and quail are provided so that God is giving them something to eat, even though they're out in the middle of the desert, uh, manna and quail. In Exodus 17, he gives them water from a rock, miraculous water. Uh, the Amal uh, the uh, uh, Amalekites attack. And so we have uh, a little bit of skirmish going on there. We've got Moses's father-in-law coming out and kind of helping Moses figure out how to sort of lead the people. Then we get to Exodus 19. And this was something that we did look at just real briefly last night. And this is where God comes and descends on the mountain. And they all camp out at the base of Mount Sinai, which I said is probably in northern modern-day Saudi Arabia, not on what we call the Sinai Peninsula. But who's to say? I could be wrong. So uh, we read at the beginning of Exodus 19, it says, in the third month from the day they left Egypt. So they've been now in the wilderness for three months, and they're eating the quail and the, the manna, or the what is it? Because that's what manna means. What is it? Because everybody said, what is it? Well, I saw it, right? And so I remember the old uh, candy bar, whatchamacallit, I haven't had one in forever, but I used to love them. And that's the name of it is the whatchamacallit, right? And so that's kind of what manna means. It's like, oh, what is this? Well, what, what's this the what is it stuff? The whatchamacallit. And um, 
and they're getting uh, water is being provided for them. So now they're there at the base of Sinai here in Exodus 19. God descends on the mountain and Moses begins to go up the mountain and speak with the Lord. And what we see is that Moses takes Joshua as uh, young Joshua as kind of like his protege, as his servant, possibly as a disciple. And Joshua still, Joshua doesn't go before the Lord. Joshua kind of hangs back and Moses goes on, but Joshua is on the mountain with him. He's not down sort of with the rest of the people. So in Exodus 20, we start getting, we see what, what it is that God is telling Moses while he's up there, just he and God alone. And we see it's the Ten Commandments. And uh, all the people could see down at the base that there is this uh, thunder and lightning and all that sort of thing, but they're not allowed to get close to the mountain. And so uh, Moses receives some additional laws uh, about altars and slaves, personal injury, theft, uh, personal property, honor, justice, Sabbaths and festivals, and then that there's going to be this covenant ceremony. So we see in Exodus 24, he says, go get Aaron, which is Moses's brother, go get Nadab and Abihu. These are the two oldest sons of Aaron. Go get the 70 of Israel's elders, bow and worship at a distance. And we see that this whole group of people actually comes up onto the mountain and dines with the Lord. And what a beautiful thing that must have been to uh, be there uh, with the Lord. Pretty incredible. Um, so Exodus 25, God is giving details to Moses about the tabernacle and everything that goes in it, the priestly garments, how everything's going to be consecrated, the, the altars. Uh, and uh, in Exodus 31, we have some of my favorite characters, Bezalel and Aholiab. These are the two men that uh, construct the entire tabernacle and everything in it, and they teach others how to do so. So again, we're already seeing the idea of discipleship from Abraham and Isaac, Moses and Joshua, Bezalel and Aholiab. We're seeing this idea of someone teaching someone else how to do something involved with uh, having faith in the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Um, so Exodus 32 now is where we get to. So while Moses is getting all the instructions for building what is going to be the place where God is going to come and live physically with his people, while this really amazing thing is happening, the rest of the Israelites are down at the foot of the mountain. They can't approach the mountain. They can't hear what's going on up there. They don't know what's what's happening. So let's take a look at, and I do have some of this uh, on the screen. So let's take a look at Exodus 32. And I'll uh, read from the screen here, <clears throat> just beginning in chapter one. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now let's stop right there for a second. And we kind of know how all this plays out. So what you have to do when you're reading this, if you're trying to figure out what it means and sort of how it would have been heard and how it would have been understood, you have to pretend like you've never heard it before. You have to pretend like you don't know what comes next and what, you know, that you've heard these things your whole life, vacation Bible school and all that. Okay, so let's take just what's happened right here so far in this first verse. You got two or three million people out there. Remember, 600,000 able-bodied men, not counting elderly men, not counting women, not counting children, and um, probably not counting the foreigners either that went with them, right? So you got probably about two million people out in the middle of the wilderness at the base of this mountain, Moses goes up and he's gone for a long time. And after a while, the people are like, well, we thought something was going to happen with this guy, but he went up there and there's all this fire and lightning and it's very terrifying. He's probably dead and we don't know what's happened. But hey, here's this Aaron guy. 
Aaron was also speaking to Pharaoh. Aaron is also someone who helped lead us out. He's the brother of this Moses guy. And so they go to Aaron and they say, hey, make us a God. Because remember, even though they have kept the faith of God somehow, it seems, through all this time, they've grown up as slaves in Egypt. Egypt has many gods. They're all represented by uh, animals and different things like that. They're all idols of some kind. And so for them, this is probably natural behavior just to make a God to uh, find a way out of something. So in some respects, you almost can't blame them for coming to Aaron for this because they are spiritual infants. They have no spiritual teaching. They have no spiritual education. They have been um, oppressed and mistreated under Egypt, and they've been taught all kinds of wrong things. Aaron, on the other hand, has heard from God. Aaron has been right there beside Moses through all of this. Aaron knows who brought them out of Egypt. Aaron knows what's going on. Aaron is the spiritual leader. Aaron knows better. The people may not, but Aaron knows better. So let's now keep reading in verse two. Then Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. So again, Aaron doesn't say, just let's just wait. Let's be patient. You've seen everything that the Lord has done. Let's wait and see what the Lord says to us next. He doesn't say that. Nope. Instead, he says, uh, okay, I'll do it. Bring me all your gold. And again, the people obey him. Why? Because they're looking to him as a spiritual leader. And so when they bring him all the gold, they are just following what their spiritual leader is telling them to do. It doesn't mean that they're not guilty. I need to emphasize that. It doesn't mean that they're not sinning. Okay. It just means, at least from a narrative standpoint, from a story standpoint, like you kind of get it. You understand why they're behaving in this way. It makes sense. Okay. So they bring all the gold and everything to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, verse four, fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now I should say one of the commands that has been given to Moses, that Moses has come down and already told all the people is don't worship any other gods, right? That's already been a command. Don't do this. But now they think, well, who was that God? And who was this Moses guy? And maybe we forget all that and just do our own thing. Aaron, rather than doing what he knows should be right, what he should know is right, he goes along with what the people want to do as they fall back on the life that they've known in Egypt. And we know that they're falling back on their life in Egypt for uh, a couple of reasons. Um, before I go on with the text, I just want to show you um, this image. So this is uh, obviously a golden calf and probably not dissimilar to what um, Aaron would have sculpted, although his was, uh, who knows if Aaron was a, this talented a sculptor, right? But the point is this, what you're looking at is not a mock-up of the golden calf from Exodus. This is instead a golden idol from Egypt. This is an apis bull. And we still have, here's stone versions of uh, apis or apis's mother. Uh, these are stone carvings. And look around, you notice that there's hieroglyphics, that these are Egyptian uh, idols, Egyptian sculpt sculptures, right? So let's consider the story thus far with these Egyptian sculptures in mind, right? So God makes man in his image. We learned that in Genesis, right? Well, now man is going to make God, but in what image? Uh, the image of a cow, 
the image of a baby calf. Why? Well, it says Apis bull from Egypt. Now, sculptures of Apis's mother, Hathor, like the ones I just showed you, have been found in the remains of the temple of Tutmos III. Now, if you were listening very carefully to all the vast amount of information that I have given you in the last couple of lessons about Egypt and the pharaohs and all that, you might recall Tutmos III, Tutmosis III, was probably the pharaoh of the Exodus. Remember, he's the one who's uh, had all these grand military conquests until suddenly stopped for no reason, and shortly after that went back and destroyed all evidence of his stepmother, probably the Pharaoh's daughter who lifted Moses out of the water, that Tutmos III. Well, he uh, and his royalty worshipped these, these uh, Apis bulls, or Hathor, the mother of Apis. Here's the interesting story about the Apis bull. The Apis bull calf, the story is that he was conceived in his mother by a ray of light from heaven. And in his life, he was sacrificed and then reborn. Isn't that interesting? So here's one thing I kind of want to point out. When we remake God on our terms, it's not, it's usually not very creative, right? So it's like you can look at the world and see, it's, it's almost as if the people that invented this worshiping of this cow could see that something like this might hap must happen, that, that God must interact in the lives of humans in some way, must, must have some kind of divine sacrifice that is worthy of something for people, and that that sacrifice must overcome death in order to show that it's worthy. I mean, this is a story of Christ, but, but because they don't understand it, they remake it in their own terms, and it's worse. It's a lot worse. It's cows and gold uh, statues that do nothing. Right. So when we remake God on our terms, it's usually it's not very creative and it's always worse. Right. So we see that um, that's what they're doing is they're falling back on the way of life in Egypt by doing this. And so I want to go back to the scripture here. It says at the bottom, then they said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So notice it's the people saying this, not necessarily Aaron. Let's continue reading um, in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he stopped it and said, no, worship the Lord. No, that's not what he did, unfortunately. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Then he made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Here is the really gross thing that is happening here, as if the idolatry weren't enough, essentially what they were saying is, well, we don't know about this God or where he went or where that pillar of fire was that were leading us. Well, we'll make this calf and this is the Lord. This is the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. So it's not even that they're saying this is another God. They're saying this is it. This is the God. They're saying that God exists in a man-created statue that looks like an animal. Um, just very depraved and gross. And it, the depravity continues. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, then got up to play. This word play, we have seen once before in Genesis. I think I might have mentioned it in the Genesis series just briefly in passing. But we see it when Abraham is with Sarah, or it might have been when Isaac was with Rebecca, but it was when one of them was lying about who his wife was, and I think it was Isaac and Rebecca, and Abimelech sees down into their, where they were staying, and he sees uh, Isaac being affectionate with Rebecca, and he says he, see, he sees them playing. So 
he did not see them like um you know uh, playing rummy or uh poker or something he, or you know he saw them they weren't playing tennis right it, they were being sexually affectionate with one another it, th- this is a word that has some sexual connotations it's a euphemism and so we see it again here in exodus 32 that they got up to play so just to be very clear what the text is trying to be clear about there was a a sexual party that was happening. It was a sexual orgy that was going on. Think of the most depraved party that you can think of in American culture that you you know you see hints of on TV and movies and this sort of thing. That's the type of thing that is happening. And it's even worse because it is specifically in pagan worship. And so there's probably blood and violence and all kinds of other things going on. They are uh, eating, they are drinking, and they are being um, sexually raucous. Moving up, going on, verse seven, the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. Now, this is kind of funny to me because this is kind of like when um, I would do something and get in trouble and then dad would get home from work and mom would say, uh, wait till you find out what your son did, right? Suddenly, I'm not her son anymore. I'm, <laughs> I'm his son when uh, there's some punishment that needs to be dealt out. And what I think is really funny is that it's God saying this to Moses <laughs> in this instance, right? That he says, hey, these people that you brought up out of Egypt, you need to go down because these are your people, right? Like, but essentially what God is saying is, Hey, I don't, I don't want anything to do with these people. These aren't my people anymore. These are your people, right? So this is, I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's like, it's an indictment. These are not my people anymore. That's a big deal. Cause the whole reason this has happened is because God has said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. They have turned, going on verse eight, they have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. It's like that whole sentence just keeps getting worse the longer it goes on. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone. And there's more to that verse, but you get the gist. And I like just hearing, now leave me alone. He basically says, you get out of here, and I'm going to kill these people. Moses sort of intercedes on their behalf. And... um, Certainly, they are punished for it. So let's go on down to verse 26 and sort of see what that punishment was. And Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. So Moses was a Levite, but so was Aaron, right? Remember, they were brothers, right? So they were both Levites. They were both from the tribe of Levi. Um, But Moses said, Moses doesn't say, whoever's with me, come to me. He says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. So uh, we don't have to read what goes on, but basically they go out and they start slaughtering people until people decide that they're going to stop sinning. And so what we have here is the Levites essentially becoming sort of the protectors of the holiness of the people of Israel. And this is why they are given the office of being priests, which is what we're about to find out in the rest of Exodus and going on, that they're going to take care of the temple and everything in it. And they've earned that right because when Moses said, who's with the Lord, the Levites came over and said, we are. So we go on from Exodus 32 and we have the tent outside the camp and the Lord's glory coming down, new stone tablets, covenant obligation, Sabbath command. Now they build the tabernacle and they make the ark and they make the lampstand and they do everything according to the way uh, God told Moses to make it. And they set the tabernacle up in Exodus 40, and the glory of the Lord descends on it. And it's an amazing, wonderful sight. And that is the end of Exodus. So now we get into Leviticus. 
And Leviticus is infamous because if you've ever done daily Bible reading, if you by the time you get into Leviticus, it's like, man, it's just so hard to get through Leviticus sometimes, right? I'm going to give you some perspective on Leviticus that I think will help you zoom through it and really appreciate it and understand what's going on. So again, you've got to look at things in context and pretend like you don't know what's coming so that you understand each thing as it unfolds, right? So to develop a robust theology, you must include all of scripture from beginning to end. So even in Leviticus 1, you must include the New Testament to understand, fully understand the theology of Leviticus 1. But to understand the story that's being told, you can't imagine the things that are going to come later. You have to sort of go with them as they unfold to properly understand, to properly know how it would have been heard by the first hearers, by the first uh, readers. So we're going to try and do that now. So we know nothing about Leviticus. We don't know what Leviticus is. We don't know what's coming. We don't know all about all the weird laws about not having sex with this, that, and the other thing, and all the purity laws. And all we don't know any about that. Okay. We're just going through it as it is. Leviticus 1, the burnt offering. It's about making an offering to the Lord. What a beautiful and sweet thing, right? Leviticus 2, it's about the grain offering. It's about offering the Lord a grain offering and how to do that. Uh, first fruits of your um, of your fields. Uh, Leviticus 3, fellowship offering, making an offering of fellowship. Leviticus 4, a sin offering. The implication here is, remember, only a few commands really have been given out, and they're really broad in general, and a lot of them, like, you kind of ought to know anyway, like, don't kill people. Like, even though when there's only four people on the earth, one of them killed another one, right? Even though... We all kind of knew, even at that time, don't murder people. Like, that's a bad thing. So the sin offering, by having the sin here when there's not a ton of laws around yet, is kind of saying, you know what you did. Like, you know when you hurt somebody. You know when you've done something that, that just really pushes people towards death rather than life. And so when you do that, here's what you do to make up for sin, to say, I'm sorry for sin, to atone for sin, to show, to pay the cost of sin by paying a livestock cost rather than having it pay a cost on your life, right? So you have the sin offering, Leviticus 4. Leviticus 5, you have cases that require sin offerings. This is just sort of examples. This is not an exhaustive list, certainly, but this is just an example. Hey, when things like this happen, these are the kinds of times when you would want to offer a sin offering. Again, not an exhaustive list of laws, just some examples, right? Leviticus 6, burn offering, grain offering, uh, guilt offering in Leviticus 7, fellowship sacrifice. The first seven chapters of Leviticus are about worship. They're about coming to God with clean heart, with clean conscience, with, with giving, with sacrifice. It's about relationship between man and God. It's about worship. The first seven chapters of Leviticus are really positive, and they're not laws in the sense that it's not do, do this, don't do this, right? It's just I mean, they might, they're commands in the sense that you need to do these offerings, you need to do these sacrifices, but they're not laws like we think of where it's like sort of statutes of this you're going to do and this you're not going to do. It's very open, right? It's very, you're going to have these kinds of offerings. Here's when you're going to do them, and here's why you're going to do them, and this is how we're all going to live together. It's really very open and a lot of freedom. And especially with a sin offering, it sort of understands that you ought to be able to figure out what's a sin and what isn't. So what happens next? Leviticus 8, we have the ordination of Aaron and his son. So now we're going to enter in for the first time in the people of God, actual ritualistic organized religion. We've got a temple, 
God's going to come and live in it. His glory is there. We've got all the implements. We've got the mercy seat. We've got the the bread and the menorah. And we've got all the offerings, everything laid out, how we're going to worship. Now, worship can truly begin for the first time. So in Leviticus 8, the Lord speaks to Moses, take Aaron and his sons, and here's how you're going to ordain them. Then in Leviticus 9, they do all the things, right? So Leviticus 8, 9, there's a lot of similar stuff because 8 saying, here's what you do. In Leviticus 9, they go and they do it. And so the um, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, his two oldest sons, are now there as priests. Aaron's the high priest and, and his two sons are the priest. Now we get to Leviticus 10. Not a fun chapter to deal with. Now, one reason I really want to deal with this in the short amount of time that we have left is because this particular scripture may have been used to you, listener, uh, about really nitpicky things about your particular denomination, your particular style of worship or way of worship. Uh, I have had this passage uh, shown to me by other Church of Christ people and talking about instrumental music versus non-instrumental music. You can have an opinion about instrumental music. You can have a theology about it. You can have a theology that says instrumental music is not what God wants. And I'm, I'm not saying don't have that. What I'm saying is, I think when we look at this passage, I think you'll see to take this passage and try and apply it to a discussion about things like instrumental music or not in worship is... Uh, there's a real disparity there, and we'll see why very quickly. So let's let's read it. Leviticus chapter 10. I know we're getting into some dicey territory here, but just stay with me, okay? I think you'll see how how grossly mismanaged this text has been um, for some of us. Right? Leviticus chapter 10, and I think I've got this on the um, on the screen here, so we can all look at it together. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, or your version might say strange fire or foreign fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and burned them to death before the Lord. Okay, escalated quickly. So let's talk about what is happening there. We'll read the first Verse again, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord. We need to talk about this phrase, unauthorized fire, just for a second. So um, the uh, this phrase, unauthorized fire, I've lost my um, my chart. Here it is. The Hebrew word there is zara, which means strange, foreign, or unauthorized. The root word there is zar, Z-A-R, zar. And it's used four times in Leviticus, 70 times in the Old Testament. Um, It describes unauthorized uh, incense in Exodus 30, verse 9. So Nadab and Abihu are told that they are not allowed to offer other kind of incense on the incense altar, that they're not allowed to use unauthorized incense. But that's not the crime here. The crime is not unauthorized incense. It's unauthorized fire, which there's nothing really about the fire in the text, like where the fire is supposed to come from or whatever. Okay, let's continue looking at this word, though, before we get real specific with it. This word, czar, this unauthorized, this strange fire, this word for strange or unauthorized, its other uses. Here's how what it means. The noun mostly designates 
uh, non-Israelite strangers or foreigners who may be seen as foes or barbarians. It implies someone unknown or outside the family, uh, suggests someone else. Uh, it refers to, to plants as exotic. We see that in Isaiah. And children uh, as illegitimate. So Hosea in 5.7, Hosea's child, illegitimate. Uh, and uh, behavior as unexpected. Uh, it, it, the behavior could be strange. It uh, talks about what is forbidden. Uh, it means to go astray, to turn from. So you see it's got this sort of this wide meaning. It's kind of a nebulous meaning that just sort of means, I mean, you can hear it in the word. It just means bizarre. The word czar, you can hear it, right? Bizarre, right? And so there's something happening there. There's this strange, foreign, bizarre fire. What does this mean? Well, if we focus on just those two words, that strange fire, that foreign fire, that unauthorized fire, it'd be very difficult for us to understand what that means. Remember to help understand what something means. You got to look at it in context. This is why I've gone all the way through Exodus and now all the way through Leviticus to get us to this point. So we know the context coming into it. Let's look at what continues as we keep reading. So the next thing that happens is the Lord destroys them with fire and burns them to death in front of everybody. Okay. Have we ever seen a reaction from God like this in scripture? Well, the answer is yes, once with Sodom and Gomorrah, because their sin was so great, right? So um, have we ever seen that with any other evil sin? Cain murdered his own brother when there was only <laughs> two brothers on the whole earth, right? God didn't destroy him with fire. He just sent him away. Uh, Ham uh, molests, rapes his own mother impregnating her with Canaan. We think that's how that story plays out. That's a gross offense. Does anything like, like this happen to him? Not that we, not, not that we can tell. Um, Lot and his daughters and the incestuous relationships that happen there. Does, does fire come down there and, and destroy them? It doesn't seem to. Judah and Tamar. Uh, Judah treats his own daughter-in-law like a prostitute and impregnates her. And this, does this happen to Judah? No. In fact, he becomes the picture of forgiveness in Genesis. So I, I just kind of have to think, just from the narrative context, that whatever Nadab and Abihu did was really, really, really bad. And in fact, this word, this nebulous meaning of, of czar, this idea that there was this strange fire, nobody really knows what it means, it seems to be intentionally ambiguous. It seems to be that the narrator, God, through the human writer, through the human author, the narrator of, Exodus, of Leviticus is trying to be intentionally ambiguous as if to say what they did, I don't want to tell you. What they did was so bad, I don't even want to say it. And there's other clues, if we keep reading, that tell us that might be the proper way to interpret this passage. So let's keep reading. So Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I will show my holiness to those who are near me and I will reveal my glory before all the people. So as soon as this happens, Nadab and Abihu are doing whatever they're doing. Moses strikes them. Uh, the Lord strikes them dead with fire. Moses turns to Aaron and said, see, this is what God meant when he said he'd show his holiness. That means whatever they were doing was unholy. It was the opposite of showing God's holiness. Remember, the people 
They don't know what to do. They've only been given a few laws so far from Moses. They don't know how to live. They're looking to Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders. They're looking to them for spiritual direction. They are spiritual infants. Some of them, like the foreigners, the people outside the family of Israel, are spiritually dead. So they are looking for these uh, to these spiritual fathers to show them who God is and how to worship him. And if Nadab and Abihu are doing something very unholy, you can see that God, his first reaction before he even says a word is to come in and stop it. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that anymore. This is a new thing we're doing. We're not doing that anymore. Even those who worshiped the golden calf and said, this is God, did not die from fire from the sky. This is something special happening here. And Aaron remains silent as Moses speaks to him. Let's continue reading to find out a little more about what they did. Um, so this is, uh, that's from Exodus 30. All right, Leviticus 10. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzapan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uzziel. This is basically the cousins, right? Uh, Nadab and Abihu's cousins. And said to them, come here and carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to place outside the camp. In other words, get them out of here. Verse five, so they came forward and carried them in their tunics outside the camp, as Moses said. Okay, so in case you don't know the nomenclature, in this time period, you would have a cloak and a tunic. The cloak was like the outer garment and the tunic was the undergarment. It was a thin piece of linen or something like that. And it was up close to the body. It was usually a single piece. And then you had a cloak over it that had a belt and things. And maybe your cloak didn't have sleeves or whatever, but the... And it's not that it was hidden. It's not like it was like underwear, but it was kind of like an undershirt. It was an undergarment and it was from neck to, to calf to ankle, right? It was, it was a single piece, but it was an undergarment and it was thin and lightweight. So Moses says, come and take them out. And it says they take them out in their tunics. Now, wait a minute. Didn't fire from the Lord just come and destroy them and consume them? And yet they're being taken out in their tunics. How are their tunics not consumed? Well, there's two possibilities. One is God's miraculous fire only consumes human beings and doesn't consume their clothing. That's a possibility. I got to admit, that's a possibility. Okay. Nothing in scripture would lead me to believe that, but that's a possibility. The second possibility and the more likely one, their tunics were not destroyed because they were not wearing them. So this is the first clue we pick up in scripture that whatever they were doing, whatever unholy evil thing they were doing, they appeared to be naked. That's not good. So let's keep reading. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, and he basically tells them, hey, don't mourn over this or you're going to cause trouble. And uh, they did as Moses said. Going on down now in verse eight, the Lord spoke to who? To Moses? No, to Aaron. The Lord spoke to Aaron. Make sure you can see what I'm saying. There you go. The Lord spoke to Aaron. You and your sons are not to drink wine or beer when you enter the tent of meeting or else you will die. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. Well, that's an odd law to just come out of nowhere. It seems like a non sequitur unless you're reading this as a story. If you're reading this as a story, you have to understand this must come from the event that just preceded this command. Right? There's been nothing here to indicate that we've moved to a new scene or that there's a break in the narrative. No, this rolls right out of it. So here's what happens. Nadab and Abihu do some nebulous thing that we don't understand from the text. God strikes them dead immediately with fire. 
Moses says, see, this is because God is going to do what's holy and differentiate holiness from unholiness. And Aaron has nothing to say about it. Then Moses says, take them out of here. And they're taken out in their tunics because apparently they weren't wearing them. And then the very next thing is God says to Aaron, okay, no more beer in the temple. No more drinking in the temple. So apparently Nadab and Abihu from the textual clues were naked and drunk. Remember back in Exodus 32, the drunken orgy that they were having at the foot of Mount Sinai while they waited on Moses. Now they have so much to see. They have the tabernacle. They have seen the Lord's glory. They have the priests that are going to represent them and the priests who are supposed to represent them and be their spiritual leaders have rebelled, have fallen back on their way of life and instead are leading the people astray. And God says, no more. This is not some nitpicky quibble over some small thing they got wrong or something they didn't understood or something they just did what they wanted. It seems very clear what Nadab and Abihu were doing was totally and completely depraved and evil. And God said, no more. Okay. So then what follows in Leviticus after this is almost as if God is saying, since you don't get it, since you don't understand how to live, I will tell you word for word, letter for letter, everything you need to know how to live. All the regulations for priests, what they can eat, what they can't, clean and unclean animals, every kind of animal, purification after childbirth, skin diseases, what to do with every single kind of skin disease you could come across, cleaning of skin diseases, how to do that, every bodily discharge. Let's go over everything that comes out of your body and talk about what of that is good for you and what's clean and what isn't, since you can't understand what is clean and what isn't. Leviticus 16, we get the day of atonement. You've got to do self-denial and you've got to make up for all these things that you're doing since you don't understand what it means to sin. 17, here's the sacrifices that are forgiven. Here, you can't eat blood. You can't eat carcasses. Here's the pagan practices that you cannot do anymore. Here are the laws of holiness. Here's the things that you must do in order to be holy. You can't steal. You can't oppress your neighbor. Don't act unjustly. Molech worship is out. Spiritism is out. Here's all the family and sexual offenses. Don't have sex with your parents. Don't have sex with your siblings. Don't have sex with your aunt. Don't have sex with animals. Just going down the list. You can see this is like an exhaustive list of a God who is just so stressed out almost, it seems, right? For it to sort of anthropomorphize it a little bit, that he's just really exasperated with this stiff-necked people going over the holiness to priests, physical defects, priests and their food, holy days, tabernacle oil and bread, blasphemy, and Sabbath years and jubilee. And finally, we get to Le uh, Leviticus 26 and we get blessings and discipline. Here's what you do if you obey and here's what happens if you don't obey. And Leviticus 27 is... Um, about vows. And it's, you're going to put your money where your mouth is. And in some cases, um, very specifically, it's about money. And that's the book of Leviticus. So we see it as, wow, there's just all these laws out of nowhere. We see it's not out of nowhere. It's because the men, the humans, remember all humans we learned in Genesis are evil from their youth. The humans are unable to be spiritual leaders for the people. And so God says, since you can't figure it out on your own, since no human will lead you well, including Moses, who sins. We'll, we'll see that in, in Numbers. Since no human can lead you, I'll give you a law to lead you. Remember, the law does not make something a sin. The law enumerates what is a sin. It was a sin when Cain killed Abel, even when there was no law not to kill. Right? So the law only enumerates what is evil. The law doesn't create the sin. It just says what is or isn't sin. So a few things to think about here. 
And I, I, I know we're running long, so I'll, I'll try and wrap up quickly. This is all about what is uh, holy versus unholy. This is all about what is clean and unclean. Holy and common, clean and unclean. Reminds me of this passage from 2 Timothy where he says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver bowls, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Uh, I also think when I, whenever I think about this passage, I think about, I went to an estate sale. I was home visiting with mom and dad and we went to an estate sale and out in the backyard, they had a bunch of things for sale. And one of the things that they had out there was a bedpan <laughs> and it had like $15 price tag on it. And I was like, is that the amount of money you're going to pay me, try to pay me to take this out of here? Cause I'm not touching this thing. And I, I just think, I mean, like if, if you, if you, washed it, if you sandblasted it, if you boiled it for days, if you bleached it, if you repainted it with a non-toxic thing. I mean, even then I couldn't ever use it as like a cereal bowl, you know, even though medically, scientifically, perfectly fine to do that in my mind. I just, I know what this is. I can't, I can't get over what this was once used for. I, I can't, I can't make that change in my head in the same way. You know, if, if there was an emergency or something and, and I had to grab a serving bowl to use as a bedpan for whatever reason, that's the last day that that serving bowl is going to be a serving bowl, right? Because it's now had a dishonorable use. It's now had a use that's not honorable. And so they can be made out of the same things. They can both be porcelain bowls. They can both be metal bowls, but they have much different purposes. And it's all, it's not about the design of it so much as it is about this is for this use and this is for this use. And remember from the first sentence of Genesis, We've been about separating light and darkness and making abundance out of the light. And it has been about God saying, my people are going to be a light to the world. My people are going to be light and we're going to send the darkness scattering. And when the leaders, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron, when they don't do that, there are consequences to pay. I'm going to leave you with a few quotes from C.S. Lewis about rebellion Whenever we continue to do the things that we want to do, this is all about rebellion. C.S. Lewis, in I believe it's in The Great Divorce, has these things to say about hell. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, okay, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. I willingly believe that the condemned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Set before us, as people of God, is a choice. Are you going to go with God? Or are you going to fall back on your old ways? Are you going to go back to Egypt? And so there's a very important thing that's going on in the wilderness. In the wilderness, the Lord is trying to lead us somewhere. We want to go back where we came from, but the Lord is trying to lead us somewhere. A couple more C.S. Lewis quotes. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. In the wilderness, the Lord is trying to lead us somewhere. You know, at the foot of Mount Sinai, when they made the golden calf, what was their great hardship? Their great hardship was they just had to wait. <laughs> it was really their great hardship. They had food. They had water. Uh, they defeated the Amalekites. Their great hardship was they just had to wait on Moses, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't endure the waiting. That was their great hardship. Think about our time right now. We're at home. Can't go out. It's our big hardship right now for many of us. Most of us watching are healthy. Our great hardship is just we got to wait. So are we just going to wait? Are we going to realize that even though our bodies can't go somewhere, the Lord is trying to take us somewhere. The Lord is trying to grow us in some way. The Lord is trying to develop us in some way. Are we going to go with the Lord? Are we going to trust the Lord? Are we going to rebel against him and create idols of our own in food and drink and sleep and Netflix and wasting time and being angry and complaining? I'm speaking to myself here. I've done uh, many of the things on that list, right? In the time that I've been here, complaining, watching too much TV, sleeping too much. When I could be using this time to see how does the Lord want me to grow? Where does the Lord want to take me? We're in this waiting, wandering wilderness right now. This is the exact moment that God wants to come and be with us very close, strip away all the distractions of life and say, Here's where I want to take you. Please pray about that. Where does the Lord want to take you while we're here together in the wilderness? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.